Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. It was one year ago this week when the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Our lives were dramatically changed. Since then, 118 million people have contracted COVID-19. In Canada, close to 900,000 cases have been reported to date with 22,000 deaths. Today's show reflects on this. You will hear voices rarely heard or almost forgotten during the pandemic. You will hear from some people who work in group homes across the county. In an interview with managers from Access Community Services, they will tell us how staff and residents in group homes have coped with the pandemic. While long-term care homes have dominated our thoughts as they faced serious outbreaks and deaths, these local services have not. You will learn how staff and residents in these group homes have taken on the challenges, and you will hear about their fight to get staff and residents inoculated at the same time as other essential workers like doctors, nurses, personal care support workers, and those living in long-term care. Here is my interview with Access Community Services. I'm so pleased to have with me today Carol Bland, Executive Director of Access Community Services, and Tabitha Lachlan, Program Manager for Access Community Services. Welcome to Consider This. Uh, Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having us. Since January, people working in group homes have been asking to be included in the first phase of vaccination rollout by the Ontario government. What has been the response? Maybe, Carol, you could answer that. All right. Well, our agency at Access Community Services um, has always had a philosophy of person-centered care. Our, the relationship that our staff, our volunteers, our, even our board of directors uh, have with our individuals is what lends itself to providing the best care that we possibly can for individuals um, through crisis and through just regular day-to-day things. In, uh, in our agency right now, I guess since I've been with the agency, we've, we've navigated a few things. We've navigated SARS, H1N1, and uh, an ice storm. And I'm pleased to say that we've had incredibly response from our staff to step up to it and when, the, when the going got really tough. And COVID has not changed that. Can you help us better understand, though, this request that's been made by yourselves and other group homes and agencies that support those uh, in regards to the vaccination rollout? Yes, we have, Rob, from a provincial perspective. And because Tabitha is the lead on our vaccination rollout, she has been um, our main contact with the health unit. I will let her step in and share some good news that we received this week and what our plans are for moving forward for the rollout. 
yeah, so we have been working on um, trying to express that we would like to be included in a priority group since we first started hearing about the vaccine. And at first it appeared as though we would be uh, several stages behind. Um, but we have just learned this week that we are finally being considered in this first priority group as essential healthcare workers, especially because we are providing services in congregate care. So the good news this week is that we are uh, furiously preparing so that we'll be ready for vaccine, hopefully in the coming weeks. Have you been given any timeline? Not really, just that it will be soon. Now, for those uh, who are listening who may not understand what congregate care is, would you mind explaining to us what that is? Sure. Uh, congregate care essentially means that we are supporting individuals who are living in a group living situation. So uh, group homes uh, fall into that category, as well as long-term care facilities and other uh, agencies who support individuals who live together in a group rather than individually in the community. So in our agency, that means that we have residential group homes uh, for adults. Maybe this is a good time to delve in a little deeper and talk more about the uh, access community services and what it is the services that you provide in Northumberland. Carol, would you mind giving us the background and the history as well as this, the list of services that you do provide? Sure, certainly, Rob. So Access Community Services um, began in 1978, incorporated as a response to the deinstitutionalization of very, very large institutions that housed um, adults with developmental disabilities. Um, a philosophical shift through the ministries that were supporting those individuals led to the goal and the desire to have more community responses to our individuals with uh, developmental disabilities and, and or psychiatric disabilities. So Access stepped up to it in Northumberland County. We opened our first group home in 1978. We now have eight physical locations. We have a very specialized treatment home for individuals who require a more intense type level of support due to some mental health issues and um, other factors that uh, impact their ability to integrate a little more into, um, into sort of the norms of our, our community. Uh, Tabitha oversees uh, the specialized treatment home. We also have our supported independent living program for individuals who do not require 24-7 care, but who do may need some assistance with money management, um, assistance to medical appointments, connection with families, and networking. And we have also, in the last couple of years, started um, our own day activity program that we provide to our individuals who uh, wouldn't sort of fit a model of going out and doing volunteer work or having employment in community. But our whole goal is around quality of life, skill development, and, and health and safety. Where are these homes located? Just We have two in Coburg and the other six are in Port Hope. And does this serve the entire county or a larger area, a smaller area? Um, we have a mandate to serve all of Northumberland County, um, but the individuals that come to us could come from anywhere in the province through a central intake system. Uh, and in Northumberland County, we can also provide supported independent living to anyone in the county as well. 
Tabitha, you were talking earlier about this good news that you've received about uh, receiving the vaccinations as part of the first phase. But I wonder if you could bring us up to speed as to what it's been like over the period of the last year. Did you have uh, sufficient personal protective equipment, sanitization equipment, uh, or any of the necessary items for the staff and the residents and those who you were serving? Uh, when the when the pandemic first resulted in a shutdown for everything, um, it was certainly a concern that we had, uh, especially with respect to access to higher level PPE like N95 masks, for example. Um, because as you test uh, for fit testing for individuals, you use masks to do so, uh, which depletes the supply, and the supply was very hard to get. Um, it was a bit of a work in progress at the beginning. We always had enough um, gloves, sanitizer. We were able to get access to fairly quickly. And there is, um, there's a survey that we fill out weekly that provides information to the ministry, which allows us access to some uh, critical supplies. It does not include gloves. They do tend to be the thing we're still struggling to get in a timely manner. Thankfully, we have not run out. And we were able to get some N95 masks recently, which has been a bonus for us for sure. And uh, we've been able to access uh, medical or procedural masks fairly consistently as well. Gowns were quite a challenge for a long time. And then when we did get some, we got a lot. So we're in a good position now with those, but we certainly were struggling to find access to gowns should we happen to need them um, at, for probably at least the first six months. Uh, that was a challenge, but thankfully we're in a good position. have any reason to believe that it would be an ongoing challenge with the exception of gloves, which do not um, come from that, at that critical supply that gets sent to us based on the survey. We have to order those independently. What have you done to adjust to the COVID-19 protocols within your, uh, within your programs and within your homes? Uh, so we have actually gone above and beyond the protocols that have been provided to us from our ministry. So from the very beginning of the pandemic and even actually before any of the protocols came out, when we first started to hear about COVID, we implemented some increased sanitation procedures in all of our homes. So we were actually already doing that when the uh, guidelines came out. So at this point, we continue to implement increased sanitation of all of our locations. Our staff are wearing uh, PPE in the form of medical or surgical procedural masks and eyewear at all times, unless they are alone in a room or uh, eating, which they also do alone in a room. And uh, wearing gloves and gowns in addition for any um, close contact uh, personal support that they may need to provide. Um, we are only accessing our community for walks with people, drives with individuals we support. We're not taking our individuals into stores if we can avoid it. And we are only attending essential medical appointments. So we're just taking some extra precautions to try to keep everybody safe and healthy. 
we have been following guidelines with respect to whether visiting is allowed for our residents and taking that very seriously. So we would only have essential visitors coming in um, and we really don't uh, take liberties with that definition of essential visitors. So uh, it does unfortunately mean that our residents, many of them have not seen friends and family for quite some time, um, but it is playing a big role in keeping everybody uh, healthy and safe. And we're using some of the things that Carol talked about, such as our internal ability to deliver um, some quality programming for our individuals to enhance their quality of life as in addition to what we normally would do, um, given the circumstances of them being rather isolated at home. Can you describe what sort of things you're talking about when you talk about those kinds of programs? Uh, can you give us a couple of examples, please? Um, sure. Since I, I supervise that program, we call it a cooperative uh, opportunities program. So we have a dedicated team of staff who aren't frontline direct residential care workers who will go into a home and speak to all of the individuals there and get a, a sense of what are your likes and desires? What are the things that you like to do? Do you like to paint? Do you like to cook? Um, do you like to do puzzles? Do you like karaoke is a big favorite? We're not doing a lot of that. That's hard on the staff. But, um, and then what will happen is that those staff, along with their, the manager in the home and the frontline staff, will develop maybe a basket of goodies that they'll take over. And they'll do some one-on-one -on -one or some group activities, depending upon what the individuals in that home like. So maybe it's a one-on-one, -on -one, maybe it's two people cooking. Um, certainly our individuals love walks. They love drive-through Tim Hortons. Um, but um, we're really trying to make the home a place where, so this is one of, the, one of the things that I use in my philosophy. We do not do med, fed, and bed here. We do quality of life and integration inside of those walls. There must be some unique challenges that you face with people that have these kinds of, of uh, various mental and physical challenges, things like washing hands or maybe blind or low vision. Uh, maybe challenges in understanding or following public health guidelines. Maybe, Tabitha, you could help us understand just what are these uh, challenges that you face and, and how are you handling that? There certainly is. Uh, so our first step, starting uh, back even before the pandemic guidelines came through, was uh, starting to do some additional education with the individuals we support around hand washing and the use of hand sanitizer as well. Um, so it does require some diligence on the part of the uh, staff supporting the individuals to put routines and procedures in place to help with that. So we did start, for example, you know, if someone goes for a walk or a drive, then when they come home from that, they go through a screening process whereby their temperature is taken, any symptoms are monitored for, and they wash their hands or use hand sanitizer. Um, so there's been some teaching to happen with that, and there needs to be some hands-on guidance and instruction from staff quite regularly for a lot of our folks. Mask wearing is a challenge for a number of our individuals. For some, they handle it beautifully. 
And for others, it's a work in progress that we have to uh, work on some educating. It's technically not required that they wear a mask as they do fall into an exemption category. But we do like to promote that our residents do if they are going out in the community because it does provide them with some extra protection. So um, helping them understand that uh, is something that we've had to work on although it was less challenging than I anticipated. I guess because they're seeing staff wearing it so often, it's become normal for them. It can be especially challenging for those individuals who may have hearing impairments or may be blind or have other uh, physical disabilities that may make it extra hard for them to deal with this new world that we're living in. Um, for example, we have residents who lip read. And so having staff whose faces are covered by PPE, uh, we've had to learn new ways to communicate with those individuals. And they've had to learn to be quite patient with us as we try to figure that out. Other than that, I would say the major challenge is um, helping our residents understand what COVID is and what it means for all of us. And as we move towards vaccination, how that might be beneficial, but also um, that it may pose challenges still and that it's not going to be mean an immediate lessening of all of the restrictions that they see happening in their lives. Carol, there's been concerns raised about high-risk seniors who live in group homes. How many people in your eight local homes fall into this category and how are you addressing it? Uh, well, our first priority is to keep everybody safe. So as Tabitha mentioned, those high, high level sanitation protocols are in place. And we actually have a large percentage of our individuals would fall into that category of over 65 or 70. Um, fortunately for those individuals, these are, most of them have really good communication abilities. So they understand, as Tabitha said, we've done a lot of work on working and, and talking. And I will tell you that some of those folks will tell the staff person if they inadvertently walk in the door without their mask on, they're going to be told by the people who hired them. <laughs> and I mean our residents. So mostly it's been really high levels of sanitation, developing the relationship, right? Um, treating everybody the same, as it were. Um, and we've had a lot of medical appointments because in this aging population, we're seeing there's a bit of a different cohort now, Rob. There, there was 25 or 30 years ago where our individuals are living longer. There's more technology around medical. We learn more about people with genetic conditions. So we are extremely cautious. We are so risk averse here that our goal has been to keep everybody COVID free for a year. And we're like, oh, I shouldn't say this almost there. We have not had one case of COVID among a staff person or a resident we support either in community or in residential care. And I think it's because of our due diligence. And certainly we attribute that a lot to our frontline staff. I'm curious also to find out how families and friends, uh, people who support and, and are related to those who you care for, how are they responding to this situation? Tabitha, maybe you'd like to talk a bit about that. 
Sure. Uh, so we have had ongoing communication with family members and, and friends or other contacts for our residents so that they are very much in the loop on what we're doing here in the agency. And I would say that we've had quite a lot of support from those family members and, and close contacts for our folks. Um, they definitely are happy to hear about the protocols that we have in place and feel that we have taken the necessary steps to keep everybody safe. And they've been very, very patient with the guidelines and understand that they're coming from, um, from the ministry and that we're implementing them and then even going one step beyond those to keep everyone safe. So it's been quite a positive response from family and friends. Carol, have you been working with the health unit throughout the past year? And, and could you describe what that relationship's been like? Oh, it's been really positive and really transparent. At the beginning of COVID, we were getting calls probably three times a day as a check-in. Um, and questions were asked such as, you know, do you have enough PPE? Do you have any concerns? Do you need us to come and do anything with you? And one of the things that really benefited us from at the beginning was that the health unit was able to come and do, we did um, just uh, surveillance testing on site um, at our agency. They offered that. They, they were absolutely wonderful. We got a whole lot of people through um, to do that testing. Um, and what's and sort of what's happening now uh, around the health unit is we have been assigned a dedicated person. So Access has, has assigned Tabitha to be our dedicated person, is working with someone from the health unit. The communication's been really great. They've been really supportive. We ring their phone off the hook if we get somebody with a symptom, a staff person, to say, what should we do? It's just been really, really positive. I think we're really lucky to be in this um, HKPR health unit. Follow up that, though. When you, I'm glad that you've gotten this uh, news about the uh, inoculations and being part of the first phase. But leading up to that, what were the efforts that we were making locally to advocate for this this decision. Can you maybe describe, did you talk to the MPP? Did you have other local officials you were talking to? How did that advocacy work go? So we didn't do anything sort of from that local perspective because as a developmental service provider, we have sort of some umbrella groups that will go out and take that messaging out. And as much as I would have liked to have chatted with the MPP, we were working pretty busy in our agency, so we had to assign where we, uh, where we plant our time. There have been a number of unions that have represent group home workers who have raised concerns about conditions. Does anyone in your employ uh, fall under that umbrella? And can you maybe describe what's been taking place from that perspective? Sure, I'll take that on. So our union is OPSU, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union. At the beginning of the pandemic, we put together, uh, as Tabitha mentioned, some pandemic protocols at a very high level, higher than what was expected from the ministry. And we struck a pandemic planning committee that had our union leadership, our joint health and safety committee, our employer-employee relationship committee, and our managers working on it. And it's, uh, they've actually, our union personnel have actually helped us to message out. Uh, we've, they've identified maybe preventative things that we could do. So there haven't been concerns raised about working conditions, um, but it's just been really, I think, transparent and collaborative. And I think we've just been really fortunate in the, uh, 
and the understanding of our union to work with us. Tabitha, can you describe for us what it's like for the frontline workers, the people who are, are in contact with the residents and, and are doing that essential work? What, what is it like in terms of the stresses and strains over the past year? Sure. Um, the stresses and strains of working in this field, some of them existed even before COVID, but I think what's probably important um, to note is the addition that COVID and all that comes with COVID presents in terms of that. So um, working in residential group homes can be a challenging uh, and very rewarding position to begin with. Um, so staff, their role in is both to provide um, to provide quality of life and personal supports and uh, anything really that the residents in the home might need. So that can vary from house to house. And so staff now doing that under the circumstances where um, you know, sometimes you have less staff working because COVID protocols across the province um, mean that some staff cannot work for us who might have worked for us in the past. So there's a mobility order in place where individuals cannot work in more than one congregate care setting. So we have, generally speaking, a less staff working for us right now than under normal circumstances, even though nobody's been sick. So it does mean that the staff working in the homes are working extra hard at this point. Um, and Carol mentioned earlier that uh, that really they've done a fantastic job and they really have, our staff have been very flexible uh, with their time. They have been willing to pick up extra hours. They have absolutely put our individuals at the forefront over this last year, but it's certainly a challenging role for them. Um, and then in addition to that, doing it all in a circumstance where it's, it's hot and uncomfortable to be in a mask all day. Uh, and those frontline staff are wearing a mask for eight or 12 hour shifts um, with, you know, some breaks, but for the most part, having PPE on consistently. Um, and working in the residential group home, their breaks are sort of, they're flexible and fluid. So it, it, it's based on who you're working with. You can take some time away and go find a quiet spot or you can go eat uh, in a quiet area, but uh, where there's nobody else. But for the most part, they're working in those conditions of having PPE on all of the time. Um, and also being less able to get out and about and doing things with the residents. So they've had to really pull out some creativity and engaging our folks in their home and stepping up in terms of making that home feel really comfortable and engaging for them because in the past we would be out in the community all the time with our folks so um, it's definitely been a strain on them they've done an amazing job and uh, can't say enough how how our staff have just done incredible at supporting our individuals and I think the fact that our folks are still managing fairly well after a year of this is testament to that. Carol we talk a lot about different uh, essential workers, uh, nurses and doctors. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on senior care, long-term care. 
Why haven't we heard as much about the work of group homes and the situation with them over the past year? That's a really good question, Rob, which is why we're so glad that you're taking this time to have us um, say our piece about this. Uh, quite honestly, I just think that um, in our sector, folks maybe not have a really clear understanding of the fact that we are publicly funded ministry organizations. And even though we have smaller groups of numbers in congregate care, um, it's easier for us, I believe, to deliver those types of services because of the allotment of time that we can have. So our ratios might be two staff to six individuals or two staff to nine individuals. And it's kind of like if, if, it isn't, if it isn't broke, don't fix it and don't squeak about it, I guess. Um, but as Tabitha said, we cannot reiterate this enough. I really do feel that individuals working in developmental services have been sort of the forgotten essential care workers. And I, until just recently, we just found out like our staff will get the vaccine. What we find interesting about that is that we were lining up to have our residents and our clients vaccinated first. We, we've got all the consents in place and information in place, and nobody was complaining about that. I think it's a philosophy of care and developmental services based on the ability to be able to have that time to develop relationship. I don't think long-term care facilities have that, that same um, uh, privilege or opportunity, if you will, based on the conditions of their employment, but, you know, certainly, and in terms of long-term care, when we have individuals move out of access groups to long-term care, we follow them in. They've lived with us for, you know, we're their family, so we will go and support them in long-term care, and it's been um, a little unfortunate this year that we've not been able to, to do that, but I, I think it's a structure, and I think that the resources for long-term care have to be put more in place, and be have that opportunity for relationship. Um, social is incredibly important. It's just doing, you know, med, bed and fed or personal, those personal support workers are run off their feet. And I think it's a, I think it's a systemic problem that hopefully this is brought to light and will get addressed. If I'm someone listening and I share the concerns and, and maybe want to help, is there anything I can do to be supportive of the work that you're doing in the community? Tabitha, do you want to take that? Because I got a long list. <laughs> I'm happy to have you share your list and then I can add to it if you'd like. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, support with community integration um, for businesses and recreational facilities to maybe understand the needs, the accessibility requirements for our individuals to be able to have opportunity to participate in community, uh, recognizing individuals' rights. Uh, recognizing that a developmental disability doesn't mean an individual does not have cognition and ability um, to make the decisions. We've, we've had situations where we may walk into a, a grocery store with an individual in a wheelchair and the uh, staff person might talk to the staff instead of the individual in the wheelchair. So promoting a, just a little bit more, a little bit more dignity, um, our community, I mean, Northumberland County has been great. I, I don't think we can complain much about that. But if you're somebody listening, right, um, just please be inclusive with our individuals when they come into community. Tabitha, do you'd like to add? Uh, very well said, Carol. I don't have a lot to add. I think that's uh, a wonderful thing that 
folks could do in the community. And uh, just understanding too that if somebody is in the community and supported by staff, that sometimes they may need more than one staff to support them and still being open-minded and including our individuals in community activities and uh, giving them opportunities. Sometimes doors are closed on, for our individuals because of their disabilities. And it would be lovely to see uh, more local businesses, more community activities that were inclusive of our folks. Carol Bland, Tabitha Lachlan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having us, Robin, bringing some light to our essential workers and developmental services. We really appreciate you take the time. Thank you. That was my interview with Carol Bland, Executive Director of Access Community Services, and Tabitha Lachlan, the Program Manager. I want to thank both my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. While we are busy self-isolating, it's important to remember the world has not stopped entirely. If you know of a good story or have an idea for a story, please let me know. You can email me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com and include as much detail as possible, especially contact information. If you have any comments, questions, rants, or raves, you can also email me at that same address. Or you can go to my Facebook page, Consider This. Or if you're on Twitter, you can message me at rwash. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. I want to thank both my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. While we are busy self-isolating, it's important to remember the world has not stopped entirely. If you know of a good story or have an idea for a story, please let me know. You can email me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com and include as much detail as possible, especially contact information. If you have any comments, questions, rants, or raves, you can also email me at that same address. Or you can go to my Facebook page, Consider This. Or if you're on Twitter, you can message me at rwash. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Consider this.